Hey, good evening again. So glad to have you here. By the way, if you were listening to Nicole's prayer, you don't have to come Sunday. She just pretty much captured my message for Sunday in her prayer. Acts chapter 8 tonight as we continue our series through the book of Acts, looking at the difference the Holy Spirit makes, seeing what a contrast the followers of Christ are between the way they were in the Gospels and then after Jesus ascends and gives them the presence and power and person of the Holy Spirit in their lives, just what a dramatic difference that makes. Now, we're in a section of the book of Acts as well. I want to point out uh, that's sort of a transition, if you will, uh, a few unique chapters. The first few chapters of Acts are all headed up by Peter, right? He's the predominant one. I mean, obviously, the whole church, right, getting started, God building his church. But Peter is definitely like the, the lead guy that God is concentrating on there. Then we've come to the last couple of weeks where we saw a young man named Stephen step up. And we've talked about Stephen the last couple of weeks. Tonight, we are in one chapter that is all about the ministry of a man named Philip. And so that's what I titled Acts chapter 8, the ministry of Philip. And this sort of then is the hinge to then beginning next week in Acts chapter 9 is the conversion of Paul. And the rest of the book is pretty much then again focused on Paul as the primary character. Now again, so many other people involved, but that's sort of where the concentration, if you will, is upon is these people being sort of the lead characters in the story that God is writing as he builds his church. And as I said before, our time of worship, God is a great God, so therefore everything God does, everything God is involved in, what he does in us, what he does through us, is going to be great. So again, great grace, great faith, great power, great wisdom, all these things we've seen exhibited by his followers through the Holy Spirit. Now tonight, this chapter to me fell out under four things that I thought were predominant throughout the chapter. Great persecution, great proclamation, great wonders, and great joy. So let's look first of all at the great persecution. Remember, this comes on the heels of Stephen being stoned. And we talked about how he died last week. And the tremendous witness of how he died, you know, was going to reverberate for many, many years to come throughout the church. Then notice, on that very day, chapter 8, verse 1, a great, not just any persecution, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So you see here, yes, what God is doing is great, but guess what? Our spiritual enemy and the opposition is going to come at us with great force as well. And there is this great persecution now against the church. You and I need to be aware of the persecution 
that will always be present against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what time of history we live in, the church and God's people will be persecuted. What does it mean to be persecuted? It means that our enemy, whether you're talking about our spiritual enemy or you're talking about the world that does not embrace God, is going to seek to suppress our worship and our witness. That's what persecution is. Seeking to suppress our worship and our witness. In other words, pressuring us to stay over there in the corner. Keep your mouth shut. Don't don't start talking about God and the things of God and all that. So that's why any time that a church of believers, things begin to happen, God begins to work and move, guess what happens? Here it comes, persecution. And when you and I are willing to step out and step up, and take more ground for the kingdom, oh, the enemy doesn't like that either. So all the while we're trying to expand the kingdom, our enemy is trying to suppress it. And and you and I need to be aware of that because, again, God's never going to take away the pressure. Look at it this way. Just as pressure creates a diamond... (laughs) or pressure creates a pearl, God is saying that that pressure against you, as you learn to live through my spirit, will only make you stronger and purer and more determined and more resolved. So that's why God allows it. And the other reason why God allowed it in this case is because they weren't being obedient to the original command of God. Remember what Jesus said back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. But he didn't stop there, did he? He said also in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the four corners of the earth. Well, guess what? Church hadn't done that yet. Church was in their little huddle in Jerusalem, in their little comfort zone in Jerusalem. And guess what? God had to use persecution to force them out and to get out there and start spreading the news of the kingdom. In fact, you see that. Look at verse 1. On that day, a great persecution against the church began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Why were they forced? Because they wouldn't go on their own. Because that was the command. Go into all the world. Be witnesses. Start going out. Nope, we're huddling together. So God then was going to use persecution to force the church out of its comfort zone. You and I need to be aware of that in our life. God will allow us to remain in our comfort zone for a while, but if we don't willingly get out of our comfort zone, 
God will bring something into our life to nudge us out. Because he knows that outside of our comfort zone, it's the best life as we learn to continue to live by faith. Because as long as we're in our comfort zone, we really don't have to exhibit much faith. But once we start moving outside our comfort zone, that's where our faith and trust really has to kick in. So God is going to let us alone for a while, but he could bring something positive, or in this case, something sort of difficult and painful. But he's going to do it not only for his glory and as part of his plan, but he's going to do it for us as well, just as he did for the church. So we see here this great persecution. And I want you to note something also in verse 1. They were forced to scatter. That's an important word. It means to disperse. It speaks about sowing and scattering seed. It's exactly what God wanted them to do. He wanted them to go, in a sense, around the world, simply sowing his seed and scattering the seed of his word. And God wants us to do the same thing today. He doesn't ask us to be involved in what happens in the response of that seed. That's not up to us. That's not on us. All he asks of us is to trust his word enough and the power of his word enough to scatter and sow the seed of his word anywhere we go and everywhere we go. Because his word will not return void. For his word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now the reason this then moves us to the transition to the next major point that I find here in this chapter about the ministry of Philip. As we move from this great persecution to great proclamation. And by the way, I'll come back to Saul next week in verse 3. But I want you to see now, beginning in verse 4, how we build off of this concept of scattering and sowing and scattering the seed of God's word because it says, now those who had been forced to scatter went around proclaiming or sharing the good news of the word of God. And I want you to see this phrase is used over and over and over again. Look down at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. As they started back to Jerusalem proclaiming the good news to many Samaritan villages as they went. Two more times over in verse 35. Philip started speaking and beginning with this scripture, proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. And one final one, verse 40, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Yes, there was great persecution, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, there was great proclamation. Everywhere these Christians went, They were proclaiming the good news, the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. They were sowing seed. They were scattering. They were thinking, how can I get the word of God out? How can I make the word of God more known? How can we take it out and spread it? Again, the harvest is up to the Lord. He's the one that brings about the harvest. It's not up to us as far as the harvest. All he's asking us to do is to believe in the power of his word and sow his seed. We're just seed sowers. I honestly don't know. I apologize if I don't mean to insult any of you who were who are West Coasters all your life. But back on the East Coast, one of the stories that we even grew up with and we were actually even taught in elementary school was the legend of a man named Johnny Appleseed. Did any of you ever heard that? Okay, all right, well, more than I thought. That story is all about a young man who just took off one day with a bunch of apple seeds. And the reason there's so many apple trees all over the, the east, uh, northeast, and the midwest, and all that, is because he just went through that region, and he just started scattering apple seeds everywhere he could go. And in time, obviously, all these apple trees appeared. God wants us to be a Johnny Appleseed. He just wants us to take the seed of his word and sow it everywhere that we go. Now we know, and we're going to come back to this, based on the parable of the soils, that yeah, some of our seeds going to fall by the wayside. Some of our seeds going to fall on rocky ground. Some of our seeds going to fall on, you know, callous tarts and all of these different but some seed might fall on good ground and take root and produce a great harvest and we don't know which heart is going to respond or not that's not up to us either all God asks of us is sow my seed and that's what the early church did proclaiming the good news everywhere that they went, getting the word of God out. Now, also, along with this, I want you to now look at this really cool story of Philip for just a moment, speaking about great proclamation. In verse 26 of chapter 8, an angel of the Lord comes to Philip and says, Philip, I want you to get up, go south on this road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza and it's desert road. Now notice, this is a, out in the boonies, basically, you know. Unfamiliar place. Doesn't even tell him what he's supposed to do when he gets there, right? And, and I love this guy, Philip. He's the kind of person we should be when it comes to when we hear the voice of God ask us to do something. Notice it just says, he got up and did it. He didn't tell God, God, I need to pray about this. He didn't say, well, God, let me think about it for a little bit. 
Or he didn't go to God and go, well, God, can you tell me more of that plan before I get up and go? Because I'm not quite, you know, it's like all you're telling me is just go there. What am I supposed to do when I get there? Who am I supposed to meet? You, no, just, just do what I'm telling you to do. That's the kind of obedience God wants to see in us. When we hear the voice of God ask us to do something, we just should get up and do it. He's not always going to give us all the details up front. In fact, most of the time, he doesn't. Because again, he wants us to live by faith. One step at a time. Just get up and go to where I'm asking you to go, and I'll tell you the rest of the details when you get there. So he gets up, and he realizes that he's going to meet up with this Ethiopian who's been in Jerusalem. And this Ethiopian went to Jerusalem, verse 27 says, to worship. But how sad is that when he went to Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, to the religious leaders of Israel, he left there feeling still empty. Like a lot of people do when they go to certain churches today. They go thinking they're going to experience God and engage with God, and they go there and they worship, and it's like, eh, nothing really happened. That can happen. And that happened with this man. He left there still not having that fulfillment and that satisfaction and that need and that aching in his heart taken care of. And so again, notice, he was returning, sitting in his chariot, verse 28, reading the prophet Isaiah. Is there any coincidences with God that he just happened to open up his scriptures to the prophet Isaiah? And then notice, the Spirit says to Philip, now the time, go, join him in his chariot. Can I tell you something about our God? God isn't concerned about time, only timing. Think about that. God is perfect in his timing. That's what God is focused on. Not time, but timing. And in the perfect time, God is the one through his spirit who joined Philip so that Philip could proclaim Jesus to this man because that's what he needed. That's who he needed. He didn't need religion. He needed Jesus. So Philip ran up, heard that he was reading the prophet Isaiah, verse 30, says, do you grasp or understand what you're reading? And the man says, how in the world can I unless someone guides me? I need a guide, I need a teacher, I need someone to lead me. And God had exactly the right person at the right time there in that man's chariot to basically, as we would say today, lead him to salvation, lead him to the Lord. And Philip did exactly what you and I should do. He started right there where that man was in Isaiah. And through the prophet Isaiah and what Isaiah said, he showed this man, this is talking about Jesus. And Philip, verse 35, it says, beginning with this scripture, proclaim the good news about Jesus to him. 
And I believe, again, obviously, God is cutting out a lot of details here, but I believe that that man received Christ as his Savior by faith, and then he comes across water, verse 36. He says, what is preventing me from being baptized? Nothing. Philip takes him down into the water, baptizes him, because that's the, the, uh, the way of the New Testament. They are saved, they are baptized, they are added to the body of Christ. He goes down, he baptizes him. And verse 39, though, when he comes up out of the water, guess what? The Spirit of the Lord snatches Philip away. And by the way, this words for snatched away is the same words that's used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 when he talks about the rapture. See, the 1 Thessalonians 4.17 isn't the only rapture in the, church, or in the Bible. Enoch was the first rapture. The Bible says he was there and then he wasn't. God just took him. In a sense, Elijah and his translation into heaven was sort of a rapture. God sends a chariot down, boom, there he goes up to heaven. Philip is literally snatched away from where he's at sharing the gospel with this Ethiopian, and all of a sudden, notice, he finds himself in Azotos. I had to look this up because I was curious. How far away was Azotos to where he was at with the 18 miles away? That would be like, we're in Gilbert right now, and all of a sudden, in a split second, we're in Scottsdale. That's traveling pretty fast. Can you imagine that? All of a sudden, you're sitting there in your chair in Gilbert, and all of a sudden, you, 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 you blink, and all of a sudden, you're somewhere up in Scottsdale. And I remember Nicole and I, you know, talking through this passage the other week, and she said, the thing that gets me is how God even performed sort of a supernatural miracle and even just getting it because he was a human being. And, I mean, talk about G-forces. <laughs> talk about going that fast or that speed going from there to there. And, and him all of a sudden landing somewhere and not like throwing up and being sick and all that because his body went 18 miles in a split second. That's faster than any astronauts ever went. But the thing I want us to see here is what's this story all about? It's about the proclamation of Jesus to this man and that God cared enough about one man, an Ethiopian that God would send Philip to meet him. That, it, this story, if nothing else, should encourage every Christian who asks the question, well, God, what if some person somewhere really wants to know you, really has a desire to know you, but they don't have anybody around? I'm telling you, God will make a way. God will figure out a way to get them the gospel so that they can become a Christian. And can I say something else? The country of Ethiopia has been one of the strongest Christian countries in this world for the last 2,000 years. There is a strong Christian witness in the country of Ethiopia. I almost wonder if one day we'll find out, does it go back to this guy? That he goes back to Ethiopia and he starts telling all of his friends and family members about Jesus? That's our God. All we have to do, like Philip, is be faithful. And we don't know who's out there whose heart is ready and wants to be open to the message of the Lord. Now, I, I wanted to 
do this story because now this story ends with pretty great wonder, right? All of a sudden, Philip's here, and then in a split second, he's 18 miles away, and like, what just happened? But the cool thing is, notice, as soon as he Ford sort of finds himself, what's he start doing again? Proclaiming the good news. But that leads to this third main point of this chapter. After great persecution and great proclamation comes great wonders. Go back with me to verse 6. They were proclaiming the Christ to them at the end of verse 5, and the crowds were paying attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the miraculous signs he was performing, the supernatural signs, the evidence of the power of God. Unclean spirits were literally crying out with loud shrieks, coming out of many who were possessed. Many paralyzed and lame people were healed. Look up at verse 13. This other man saw the signs and great miracles that were occurring, and he was amazed. Listen, when the Spirit of God is in leadership in our lives, we will be willing proclaimers of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be seed sowers. We will scatter the seed of the Word of God as much as God gives us opportunity. Because we believe in our God, we believe in the message of our God, we believe it is the only message of salvation, the only message of hope, the only message of joy and peace that anyone could ever embrace, and we believe in the power of God's word. And so we will always confidently and clearly proclaim it. But when the Spirit is also being embraced and being in leadership, there will be evidence of his power in our lives and in the life of our church. There will be miracles that happen. There will be supernatural things that happen that you and I can't explain or take credit for. And there will simply be continual evidence that everything that's happening in and through our church family and and us even as individuals is simply evidence of the power of God. It's not our power, our strength, our might. It is the power of God that's doing what's being done. And again, they should be seeing that power in our lives every day, that we're not living by our own power. We're living through the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, the kind of power that Paul said to the Philippians, I can do all things through that power, and you can too. We're seeing the power of God flex its muscles in our church, but I want to see it more. I want to see us be more open and, and, and more believing in, the, in a, the power of our God that nothing is too hard or too difficult for. And that's what was happening in the early church. I think when they got together and they prayed, they expected and anticipated to see miracles. I think many Christians don't live that way anymore. They look at supernatural things and miracles as, as, you know, the exception rather than something that can always be taking place. And I don't know about you, but I think that we could be testimonies to being a living 
supernatural miracle every day if we're living by the power of the Holy Spirit rather than our own power. People could look at us and go, how in the world are you saying what you're saying and doing what you're doing and having the outlook you're having and having the mindset you're having? And how can you have that joy and how can you have that? It's all through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how. And that leads to one other thing in this passage of Scripture. But before I get to that, I want to go down and pick up another story that I think is just as important as Philip and the Ethiopian. And that's down beginning in verse 12. No, actually, it starts before that. Verse 9. There's this magician who is sort of, as it says there in verse 9, practicing magic. His name is Simon. And this power that he sees happening with the church and the people of God has got him intrigued. Because he's got power. He's harnessing demonic power to produce unnatural effects in his life. And his demonic power has captivated and enthralled the people of this region. But now he sees not only a power equal to his, but he sees a power greater than his, and he's very interested in it. The thing I want you to see tonight, though, and this is very important, is that when you come down to verse 13, the Bible says Simon himself believed and after he was baptized, he stayed close to Philip constantly. And there are many Christians that would read verse 13 and go, well, that man, I'm going to see him in heaven one day. Bible says he believed and he was baptized. If you then read what happens in verse 18 through 24, I hope you come to the same conclusion that I do, that there is no way this man was saved. In fact, Peter uses words that only are used by people who are unbelievers. He says in verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could acquire God's gift with money. Because in verse 19, he sees this power and he's basically trying to buy the power of God. Because he doesn't want a savior. He wants the power. It's the power that intrigues him, not Jesus. And Peter says, you have no share, verse 21, or part in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that he may perhaps forgive you for the intent of your heart. For I see that you are bitterly envious and in bondage to sin. Simon can't even pray. Asked Peter to pray for him. So why do I want to bring this up? Because I think this is important for us to understand. Belief does not always equal saving faith. This word, believe, does not 
always equal saving faith. Anybody can say, I believe. And obviously we know just because someone's baptized doesn't mean they're going to heaven. God looks at the heart. And over and over and over again in the New Testament, the Bible warns us about simply taking, you know, oh, well, they, they say they believe, they, they must be saved without any further evidence of that. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 about those who believe in vain. Jesus says in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And in the story or parable of the soils, does not Jesus say in that parable that out of the four soils, only one is truly a believer, the other three are not. And in one of those soils, he says, there was one who accepted the word of God with joy at the beginning, but then these things came into their life and the belief that they have was gone. You and I have to beware of simply because someone says they believe, or we heard they believe it, and again, because here's the thing. First of all, we're not to be their judge of their eternal salvation anyway. That's not up to us. That's God. But we also must not assume that everyone who claims to be a believer and who's been baptized is a true believer. As I've told people for years, it, it's one of the things that causes confusion amongst Christians if you allow it to. Because there's four different categories of people. You've got the Christian over here, what I call the devoted Christian, who claims to be a Christian and lives like it. They don't cause confusion. Then you've got the unbeliever on this side who wants nothing to do with God and life shows it. They don't cause confusion either. But the two groups in the middle do cause confusion. You've got the person who claims to be a Christian and is, but doesn't live like it. And then you've got the person over here who claims to be a believer too, but obviously like Simon, their belief isn't genuine. And that's why Jesus said, I don't want you to separate the sheep from the goats. That's up to me. I'll do that at the judgment. You just keep sowing the seed. But that leads to the final point, this great joy. Because all Simon was interested in was the power. And I want you to note that after these great wonders and after this great proclamation in verse 8, so there was great joy in that city. What is joy? It is the awareness and appreciation of God's grace. That's what joy is. In the Greek language, the word for grace and the word for joy are very close. Kara and charis. When you and I truly are aware of God's grace upon us and appreciate his grace, we will be filled with joy. 
because we know that all that we have and all that we are, we didn't deserve any of it. And look at all that we have and we didn't deserve it, any of it. How can not, not give us a, an inner sense of well-being? And by the way, the differentiation between happiness and joy, happiness happens, joy remains. Happiness goes on with whatever our circumstances are. Joy is constant because it's a continual awareness and appreciation of the grace of God. And what does the Bible teach us about joy? The joy of the Lord is our what? Strength. The joy of the Lord is one of the what? Fruit of the Spirit, which again shows that when the Spirit of God is in control and the primary influence of our lives, not only will there be great proclamation, not only will there be great wonders and power of God evident, but there will be great joy in our lives. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and what's the second one? Joy. Even before peace, joy. Right after love, joy. When you and I allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and control us, we will be a person who is full and overflowing with joy because we will be continually aware of and appreciating the grace of God in which we stand every day. One more thing. Again, how God works. Notice up in verse 1 that the trials of one Christian community has brought blessing to another. That's an important principle. Here in Jerusalem, verse 1, they're going through it. But because they're going through it, it forced them out to Judea and Sumeria. And when it did, guess what happened down in those cities? Great joy. Great joy. So the principle of God is this. Are we willing sometimes to go through difficult days in order to be a blessing to someone else? Sometimes we may have to walk through something in order for someone else to be blessed. I think about that verse that Jesus shared with his followers. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces an abundant harvest. And that's why Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily and die to self. Because when we die to ourself, which is what's really holding us back, then God can use our lives to be such a blessing to so many others. And that's what you see happening as the Holy Spirit has grabbed a hold of these people's lives. Whether it's Peter or Stephen or Philip or Paul or Aquila and Priscilla or whoever it is in the early church, 
All these people are saying, as we sung about, take my life, let it be. Or at the end of it all, all that matters is just give me Jesus. That's it. It's all I'm living for. So remember, when you and I are in tune and in touch with a great God, great things will always be happening in, through, and around us. Great faith, great power, great wisdom, great joy, great proclamation, great grace, because our God only does great things. And he wants us to believe in his greatness and allow his greatness to flow through us and in us each and every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the ministry of Philip and so many more, God, and how it can inspire and motivate our Christian life thousands of years later. God, you're still using them. (laughs) That's what kind of God you are. And Lord, I pray tonight that all of us, especially from the worship and the word tonight, that, that God, we would leave here wanting to be filled with your spirit every day so that, Lord, our life could express that that great proclamation of being a, a seed sower, a scatterer of your word, that, that our lives would express great wonders and, and your power, God, every day, and that our life would express great joy every day as well. God, use our church and use us as your individual children, God, to bring more and more glory to you and more and more blessing to others every day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here.